Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, guys. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Real Talk. I'm your host, Anna Pajarski, and this is the podcast about materials and making that asks what more is there to materials than just boring old science? This episode was recorded live in the upstairs room at Cherry Red's Cafe Bar in Birmingham. It features local archaeologist Coralie Atchison talking about the material which catapulted the region into the history books and the world into the Industrial Age. That material is iron, and I started by asking Coralie what her job involves. I'm an archaeologist, so that means I study the material remains of the past. Um, In practice, on a daily basis, that means I work in planning, so I try to work out what is somewhere that we want to develop, uh, what might have been there in the past, what might still be there, and what we need to do about it. Um, But for the past few years, I've also been researching um, cultural heritage and how we actually engage with the past in the present. Ooh, what... what sort of research is it is it like academic research yeah so i've been uh, doing a phd <gasps> in cultural heritage <gasps> wow how's it going do we ask that question yeah. done oh it's done guys it's done <laughs> we absolutely do ask that question for the rest of your life <laughs> hello this is anna from the future popping into your podcast earlier than usual just to let you know that i did eventually sort that mic out so it will stop popping in a minute or so so stick with us um awesome so today we're going to be talking about iron and the first question is what is iron so iron is a metal Um, And it's a really important metal both for us now and and for humans around the world throughout the past. So in Britain, we've been able to make it for about three and a half thousand years. Um, And we actually have a period which we call the Iron Age. Um, But the bit I'm really interested in is actually a second Iron Age, which started in around uh, 1700 or so, um, when we went from being able to make small amounts of this metal, which is really useful and cool and shiny, and we could make sharp things with it, to being able to make it in huge amounts and very cheaply. And that's when we see it becoming a really super important material for life in the modern world. 
Amazing, aka the Industrial Revolution, AKA I believe. the Industrial Revolution, yeah. Also, what's interesting about the Iron Age, as I read on Wikipedia on the train up here, um, <laughs> is that the Iron Age occurred at different times throughout the world. So the Iron Age definition is when humans were using iron as their sort of tools and their main technology. And so actually in sort of Europe, where we are now, like uh, the Iron Age came much later than in places like India, where they had developed that technology much earlier. Yeah, so what's really cool about iron is you can make it in pretty much anywhere in the world because so much of the world is made of iron. Um, but in order to be able to make it, you need to know how to make it. And ideas travel quite slowly, at least they used to. Now we can put it on Twitter and people on the other <laughs> side of the planet can hear about it. Um, but in, um, obviously in the Iron Age, um, you know, things could move as fast as people could walk and ideas can only move as fast as they're accepted. And out in Britain, we're really far beyond the edge of, you know, uh, all of these ideas, so we got things pretty late. But actually, in the Industrial Revolution, we see it sort of the other way around. Britain became um, one of um, really important centres for these ideas. And actually, people were able to move around a lot in the Industrial Revolution. So one of the reasons we know quite a lot about what was going on in the Midlands is because there were all these industrial spies who uh, travelled around Europe trying to, like, copy what people were doing. And so we have stuff from a notebook from Sweden uh, that tells us what they were doing in Ironbridge, um, which is super cool, obviously. Hence the local connection. The Midlands was a really important centre for um, ideas in, during the Industrial Revolution, and um, the bit that I've been studying is really early on, actually. Um, and um, people were travelling from different places to where they could get raw materials to use. Um, in Ironbridge, which is about 40 miles west of here, um, there was this amazing setup where you've got the, the steep river gorge that allowed people to mine directly into the hillside. Um, and so they could get really easy access to coal and ironstone, limestone and clay, which is basically all the things you need to make iron. And it was all in one place and they could get it really, really easily. And so it was a really good place to make iron. And um, so uh, why this area became really important in terms of the history of the Industrial Revolution is that there was an innovation made in this area which allowed us to make lots of iron really cheaply. So before that, we had to make iron using charcoal um, because we can get a nice uh, high heat from it, but charcoal, you have to burn a lot of wood. And timber is obviously a you know, slow-growing resource and there isn't an unlimited amount of it, so it's really expensive. And it's also really fragile, so if you load a lot of ironstone on top of it, it'll just turn to dust. So you've got an automatic limit on how much iron you can make at any one time. Um, and the innovation that happened in Ironbridge in 1709 was that um, they found a way to make iron using coke, so cooked coal, effectively. Um, so they could use coal, which is a rock, sort of, um, and they could load lo lots of ironstone on top of it, and they could also get it super cheap from the hills all around them. And so in Ironbridge, we see uh, the birthplace of being able to make mass-produced iron, and without that, you couldn't really have all the other things that we think of in the Industrial Revolution, so trains and canals and factories and eventually iPhones and the internet. So we've been mentioning Iron Bridge, yeah. which is both a place and a bridge. Yeah, so it's a strange name, isn't it? Because obviously you think, is there a bridge of iron? Uh, obviously it wasn't called Iron Bridge prior to them building an Iron Bridge. Um, it's a, it's a, a, a gorge on the River Severn, um, Colbertdale, and um, there wasn't anything where there is now the town of Iron Bridge, apart from some wharfs to allow 
uh, all the iron that was being made in the area to be sort of shipped off down to Bristol. Um, but the iron makers there um, were businessmen and entrepreneurs, and they wanted a way to really advertise how cool the metal that they could make was and how much they could make it and how good it was. They wanted to this you know, massive um, advert, and so they decided to build an iron bridge which had never been done before. So Ironbridge is really important both as the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, or one of them. Obviously, other places claim that title as well. Um, but because they have the world's first iron bridge, that was built in uh, a little bit later, in um, 1779. It was actually built by the grandson of the first person who made that innovation with coke smelting. Um, so we have Abraham Darby the first, and then we have Abraham Darby the third, who is the, known as the bridge builder, although there were other people involved as well. Amazing. So can you tell us more about the bridge? What was so amazing about the engineering and the technology behind it? Well, the Iron Bridge is, is really interesting. It's, it's pretty much a wooden bridge. It's made of iron, but they made it like a bridge made of wood. So it's got mortise and tenon joints and it all sort of fits together uh, like a, a carpentry bridge. Because nobody had any idea how to make an iron bridge. They didn't know anything about um, you know how to get all the the tension right and um you know it's, and it's an incredible fluke that it survives um and one of the reasons it survives is because it's a bit rubbish in that sense um, because it moves which is not generally what you want a bridge to do it was sort of accidentally the perfect bridge for a geologically unstable river gorge where the sides of the valley are constantly moving and so um uh, Telford built some other bridges um, about a decade or so later um, made of iron much better engineered far less iron used because they used so much iron in the iron bridge it's really heavy because um, they over engineered it you know. and they didn't survive because the gorge is just moving and it floods and it just wasn't uh, you know, adaptable so it's like, almost like an earthquake proof bridge although it has had some help in the last few decades to still be standing so it's both amazing because of this um how it came to symbolize just this kind of innovative spirit that was around in the 18th century and people were inventing all sorts of amazing things that had never been done before and it was a really exciting time in that sense people were coming from all over the world literally to see this bridge and um you know it, it's important not just as an engineered item as the first of its kind but also of what it symbolizes of that period um, and as a beautiful and attractive strange bridge today in a, what seems like quite a quiet part of the world it's a little bit odd <laughs> <laughs> so there's both the iron bridge and there's another site of interest that is really pinnacle to development of iron as a mass producible material what's that other site yeah so um the iron bridge is obviously sort of late 18th century when this innovation with coke smelting took place it took place in a single blast furnace as you know you could imagine um and it's what we call the old furnace because it was already old when abraham darby uh, leased it he came up from bristol he had some ideas about making cheaper cooking pots and he uh, leased this uh, old blast furnace um, and started experimenting. And so that place, this single, um, it's a sort of stone-built structure, uh, it represents the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution in just one single sort of few square metres. Um, but of course that's come to represent all of Ironbridge and actually all of the West Midlands. You'll see Birmingham claiming to be the, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution largely on the basis of uh, Abraham Darby. So it's a 
a, a widespread term. So your work then is to look at the significance of these sorts of places in our world today. And that's, I guess, well, what would you say that the definition of heritage actually is? So heritage can be the stuff. It, you could say that the Iron Bridge is heritage or the old furnace is heritage. In the more sort of critical academic world that I uh, inhabit, it's the uh, it, heritage is the processes by which we value the past. So um, we, we turn things into being valuable by deciding that they're valuable because they're old. Um, and so it's more of a, a process than just things. But it can mean different things to different people, so it's an interesting term. Yeah, so these two sites then are heritage sites. What does that mean for them and how has that changed them? So one of the key things we'd say about the value process of heritage that we've decided that things are important is that we then decide that we have to preserve them. That's like one of the key identifying factors in like what heritage is. Um, and so being a heritage site generally means that people have spent a lot of time and money and effort making sure that it doesn't fall down. Um, and um, a lot of the time that's associated with tourism because um, we want to be able to pay for that preservation, but also because we think it's important, we think that people will want to come and see it, and also people will want to come and see it. And so they have this kind of um, relationship between the two where often a heritage site becomes a heritage attraction. Um, it's not necessarily the case, but that generally is you know, what we see. And so in Ironbridge, um, they're all part of a, a museum complex. Um, the bridge is actually looked after by English Heritage, which is obviously a major British heritage organisation. And um, they're looked after and they're promoted for people to come and see. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. And why do you think it's important for people to come and see them? It might not be. <laughs> okay, I'll ask that differently. No, well, I can, I, I can explore it a little bit. <laughs> it would be important for people to come and visit Heritage if we have values 
for them that are relevant to people. Um, I don't think that we should just preserve everything because it's old, but if we as a society decide that things are important because they're old, because they mean things, because they represent stories, and they represent people in the past, um, and they're valuable to us, then that's why we should preserve them, and that's why we should invite people to come and share them and enjoy them. Um, but yeah, I don't think they are necessarily intrinsically valuable. Interesting. How does the public react to those two different sites? Are there any differences? So if you've been to Ironbridge, um, the Ironbridge is a very popular attraction. It is pretty. Um, it's also the kind of site that people understand. We know what a bridge is-ish. You know, We might not know why it's important, but you know, we can look at it, we know what to do with a bridge, we can take photographs of it, we can walk across it, and we can enjoy it as a kind of scenic, attractive thing. Um, if you want to, you can engage with it as a wonder of the industrial age or as a feat of engineering or whatever, but you can also just enjoy it. Whereas the old furnace um, is what has been called, you know, a, a damp pile of bricks. It's okay. a sort of square... <laughs> Um, ruined structure that's in a pyramid, which is um, it's a shelter, it's to look after it and stop the rain getting to it um, but it means people don't really know that it's there, it's in this kind of weird box shape um, and it's also not advertised, so it's not actually on a lot of the maps of the area, it's not really signed, so people come to Ironbridge, they hear the name Ironbridge, they think <laughs> bet there's an Ironbridge <laughs> and they go and see the bridge and they don't necessarily go and see the furnace and even though the sort of strap line for the whole area is birthplace of the industrial revolution uh people generally are not going to say i wonder why it's the birthplace of the industrial revolution i wonder where exactly that happened um because people generally will just go oh okay and then if you actually ask them about it and they'll maybe question it they'll think i've just spoke to so many people be like oh is it the birthplace of the industrial revolution isn't that you know Sheffield or something and then they'll they'll just decide that it's a marketing gimmick and and move on you know um so yeah not many people go to the furnace is the answer and when they do go it's quite hard to understand so there's a lot of text panels um if you like a sign then you're you know (laughs) (laughs) but you know I I don't read signs when I'm at sites Uh, a lot of people don't um so unless you know what it already is, or you enjoy signage, or you go on a guided tour, it's really hard to, to engage with. And does the furnace still work? No, <laughs> no sadly not. I know you said it was uh, ruined, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's ruined. That would be cool, though. If we could have it working, I feel like that would be a much more uh, interactive experience for people. I think that's a really interesting point, because when you go in, because it's in this cover building, it's incredibly quiet. Uh, it's almost church-like, and you sort of feel like you need to be quiet in it as well and maybe whisper. And you can't really touch it. You can, but, you know, it's a sort of heritage site. You feel like you shouldn't touch it. And so you were very removed from it, and um, that really changes the way you you are going to interact with it because, yeah, it it just doesn't seem like something that you can touch. If it was on fire (laughs) with iron coming out of it, Probably still couldn't touch it in that scenario, but... No. but you'd, you'd have a much more uh, tangible experience from the noise, that if is nothing true. else, and the, and the heat. Yeah, it's always really difficult to imagine, actually, what, what it would be like to see one of these blast furnaces actually working. Yeah. Um, I've got a colleague, Nicole Schmitz, who does iron pours, and she 
has a furnace and pours iron from it. And, like, once you actually see it, the heat coming off this molten liquid, like, you, it suddenly hits you, actually, the extreme engineering that is involved. Whereas, I guess, if you're just looking at a ruined square <laughs> of bricks, yeah. um, it won't quite get you in the same way. And I think maybe the contrast with the bridge is that the bridge is a beautiful object in itself. Yeah. Um, and... As you say, we know what bridges are, we understand them. And so it's put much more into context than a furnace would be. Yeah, I think so. And actually, Iron Bridge does have a working furnace uh, in Bliss Hill Museum. Um, but that connection isn't necessarily made. And obviously, even if it is made, a lot of visitors won't see that connection being made. So people will maybe go and see the iron being poured on a Wednesday in Bliss Hill and think, wow, that's really cool. But they won't think, and that ruined structure that I saw is where they made it and it was like this yeah I want to interrogate this idea a little bit more that you alluded to about like maybe we should or maybe we shouldn't preserve these kinds of historical sites what would be the reasons that we maybe wouldn't want to or shouldn't I suppose first thing is it's very expensive um and you have to do if you're going to keep heritage uh, at least the heritage of the industrial revolution you need to keep it standing or it's going to hurt people. It's, it's very large. It's very contaminated a lot of the time. Um, and it's made of heavy stuff, you know, like massive stones and things. Obviously, you've got your lovely prehistoric sites. They're generally okay. You can kind of just leave them um, and they'll carry on being standing stones. Um, with the Industrial Revolution, you're going to need to spend a huge amount of money and I suppose it's really what we're trying to get out of it. So I obviously work in heritage. I think we should preserve them. Um, that's not where I'm going with this. Um, but actually, one of the really interesting things when you conserve and preserve industrial heritage is you change it so fundamentally from its context. So we've gone from having a blast furnace, which is a working structure. It's, um, it's about... Um, you know, hard work and heat and injury, and it's a difficult story to tell, you know? We're talking about the industry and beginnings of fossil fuel, you know, and its mass pro use in mass production. Um, these are not necessarily easy stories to tell. Um, and when you keep them all nice and shiny to keep them from falling over, you've automatically taken away some of that visceralness um you've made them quiet uh, obviously generally you can't have them working if you want to keep them safe and that has perhaps changed the story that you can tell with them so if the reason for keeping them is to tell a story and engage with that past if you change them so much by preserving them then then you need to think about it <laughs> i still think you should do it but yeah it's a tricky one so is it the job of experts like you then to try and translate as much of the truth about the place or the object to us now? Or what, what does the job of a sort of heritage expert look like? That's a really interesting point because I think 
a lot of the time the job of somebody working in heritage interpretation is very much geared to making sure that people have an educational and fun day and keep coming back and you know spending money that allows you to keep these things working and everyone you know we get very busy in our jobs so we just carry on doing it and um one of the interesting parts of being an academic is you can kind of step back and say but what stories are we telling and you know is it I think we have to really critically think about this stuff. So if we're talking about the Industrial Revolution as um, this amazing period of innovation in Britain, then you've automatically got a line of thinking that's very much about how brilliant Britain is, um, which is fine, maybe, but there's automatic political context for that. Um, and at the same time, if you're a bit left-wing like me and you start talking about uh, climate change then that's a completely different story that you're maybe telling. And so I think we have to think really hard about what stories we tell. And that's got to be about the, what we want heritage to be and what we want it to do for, for us, you know. And if we're going to keep it, then we've got to think about why we want to keep it. Yeah, a really tricky balance then between selling tickets and celebrating the place or the structure and actually being honest about it. Um, I can think of other examples of museums in the UK that maybe aren't so honest about the origin of some of their (laughs) items or, you know, like, it must be a really tricky balance to strike. The the really classic question of, uh, well, um, how was all of this paid for? You know, any kind of stately home is a really... I mean, it's a brilliantly awkward question and it's a question we should definitely be asking and talking about. Uh, But I think there's an automatic idea that we don't want people to be uncomfortable on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon because, you know, there's a balance between entertainment and education. And I'm not saying that people need to be ed- ed- uh, educated all of the time. You know, that's not, that's also not the point. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky balance. Yeah. So do you want to talk anything about your, like, PhD stuff? Yeah, so one of the really interesting things that I found was about... I went, the question I was trying to ask is how are the values of this World Heritage Site, because I am rid of the World Heritage Site, how are those values communicated to tourists? Um, so as World Heritage Site, it has what's called outstanding universal value. So it's supposed to have, oh, outstanding, so it's got to be really impressive, but it's got to have universal value for everyone on the planet. Wow. This is a really massive claim. And so I was trying to see how that part of the site is communicated. Um, and the answer is probably not. You know, so you start going from how is it communicated to maybe why isn't it communicated? Um, and that was really interesting. So there was loads of uh, stuff I found about how how pretty Iron Bridge is forms a, quite a difficult barrier for people when thinking about the Industrial Revolution. So the whole I was talking about the whole thing about conservation. When when you conserve a site that's in the countryside, quite often you sort of greentrify it. So it's like gentrification, but with bunting and um, <laughs> and yeah, we want to make places nice for people to live you know that is not a criticism um, but actually quite a lot of the time we end up making places seem quite rural um, and we have this kind of imagined idea of the English rural past which is um, like something out of a BBC Sunday na- afternoon drama and it doesn't really have much of a place for blast furnaces and so <laughs> when you try and say, oh, this is the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, and you're also saying, come and have cream tea, then there's a really difficult barrier for people to get across before they even look at a sign, if they look at a sign, which is, again, another issue. Um, 
And the other thing is, you know, outstanding universal value. You can't tell that to people. You can't say, let me tell you about the outstanding universal value of Ironbridge Gorge, because they'll just be like, what? You know, it actually seems like quite a strange concept. Ironbridge is both phenomenally important. There is, um, I, I read somewhere when I was doing my research that out of all the World Heritage Sites, and there's well over a thousand, Ironbridge is one of the only ones that can really claim outstanding universal value because of its place in the Industrial Revolution. Because, I mean, it's quite hard to argue that everyone on Earth really should value Stonehenge. I mean, I don't know if everyone in this room would value Stonehenge. So, but actually, we've all been massively affected by living in an industrialised world, and um, even if we live somewhere very remote from an industrial centre, we've still got to breathe the air. Um, but at the same time, Ironbridge feels quite small. It's in the British Midlands. You know, we're away from London and don't feel like the centre of the world. And so when you try and tell that world-changing story, a lot of people just find it hard to, to accept. There's, Ironbridge has a lot of pictures of the pyramids, which are another World Heritage Site, and they'll say, Ironbridge is, is as important as the pyramids. I would say Ironbridge is far more important than some burial grounds for some dead pharaohs. You know, but, but actually, most people look at that and say, well, it's not. <laughs> you know, pyramids are cool, they're big, and we know they're important. And this is a valley in Shropshire. And so it's so hard to tell those stories. And I don't know exactly how we overcome that. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to talk about the fact that it's maybe not automatic. Mm. Are there any really innovative methods being proposed or being done currently around heritage and around telling those stories? Absolutely. I think one of the ones that I've seen in the last year or so is the Man Engine. In, um, well, it started in Cornwall, and it's an arts project. Um, and they then toured it around the UK. It actually went to Ironbridge. And um, this is a project that really put, um, I think, quite a lot of the heart and soul back into talking about the Industrial Revolution. I think a lot of us did that period in school and it was about um the factory system you know and it all felt quite dull and and um and diff and maybe quite gray actually um and at the heart of any story we want to tell about the industrial revolution should not be steam engines and coal it's got to be people and whether that's incredible innovators or the you know huge numbers of People who went down the mines as children and, you know, rarely saw sunlight in their entire lives. You know, that's the story of, of the Industrial Revolution. I think that's something we can genuinely connect with, um, the human story. Um, and I think any uh, interpretive method that puts people at the centre is going to be a lot more successful. Um, so, yeah, the man engine is beautiful because it's all um, Cornish hymns and music and... Uh, and poetry, and it's told through the eyes of a young boy who went down the mine when he was a child. And I think there's this amazing thing, because it's this huge robot, effectively, uh, with glowing eyes, and it, it makes metals, and it, you know, there's fireworks and all this kind of thing. But ultimately, it's a story about people. So we can use the spectacle of the Industrial Revolution to draw people in, but when we've got them, we've got to tell them a story that's real to them. Um, so I think that's, that's where the innovation is. Awesome. So what does the future hold then for sites like Ironbridge? I think in the near future, it'll probably be more of the same. Um, 
But I think we have seen things like the Man Engine, we're seeing a lot more creative responses. So when Ironbridge really started out as a tourist attraction um, in you know, the 70s, there wasn't so much competition for people's leisure money. Um, but now they've got to compete with um, so much more. And I think while that can be a huge challenge and it, it can be really difficult and it can feel really hard if you're working in the heritage sector that you've got to try and compete with so many other, um, even heritage sites, never mind... Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Um, but actually that's a real driver for us to be creative and say, well, maybe we don't have to preserve this stuff, but if we are, then we've got to make it good. We've got to have a reason for doing it and think about those reasons. And so hopefully... Um, in the future, we'll have people really connecting with the Industrial Revolution. Also, as things get older, we value them more. So, you know, the uh, 18th century is becoming much longer ago than it was uh, <laughs> even five minutes ago. So, you know. Um, so if people have been excited to hear about Ironbridge, um, obviously they can go and visit. Um, is there anything... Is there anything else they can do to kind of get involved with this idea of heritage and of preserving our past? One of the best things you can do is to talk to volunteers in local history museums. Um, a lot of the time, uh, there'll be people who have a history working in industry. Um, that's certainly been my experience. And a lot of the time, you'll see these people and they'll be selling tickets or um, you know, maybe polishing a steam engine or something. Um, but they themselves are this incredible source of, of knowledge about our, our quite recent past that's becoming quite inaccessible to us. I find it very hard to imagine what being a miner was like. And that's not very long ago that a huge amount of our workforce was working in mines. Um, and we're, you know, ultimately those people will not be with us forever. And so I think there's a real value in both hearing their stories for ourselves and also giving them the opportunity to, to tell that story. So you can, you can visit places, you can spend money, that's also really helpful in terms of keeping them going, but I think talk to the people who work there and ask them why they love it and why they're interested in it. And um, I think you'll probably have a much better time than you would have had reading the signs anyway. Great, I'm going to go and harangue all of the mu museum staff that I find. <laughs> um, where can people find you online if they want to follow you and your escapades going forward? Probably Twitter is the best. I'm at Coral Frog. Uh, like coral, the thing that lives in the sea, followed by frog, the thing that lives in a pond. Uh, and, uh, yeah, all my other things are on Twitter, linked to on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on Real Talk. Thank you. Amazing. So that was the lovely Coralie Atchison. Thanks so much to her for coming on the show and also to our wonderful audience for coming along and joining us on the night. Special thanks and shout out to Sarah Cosgriff, John Wood and the Brum SciComm social team for hosting us and to Martin Kachara for providing sound and tech support on the night. I have to say, it was totally dreamy to come and bring Real Talk up to our new friends outside of London. So if you think that we could record in a pub near you and talk to a local artist, maker, mover or shaker about their favourite material, then please get in touch. You can do so on Twitter at Real Talk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, or on our website, which is realtalk.com. I've got so many new awesome episodes in the bag, which I'm super excited for you all to hear. There'll be another one out in two weeks' time, but until then, I've been Anna Pajajski. Thanks for listening, and I'll look forward to seeing you next time on Real Talk.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 